nights are getting long. The shadows are getting longer in every evening. As October closes in, the leaves fall, the seasons change, and a cold night wind blows through the air. In Tennessee and Virginia, as all over the world, ghosts, haunts, folklores, superstitions, they keep us awake at night. Well, what are these haunts? What's going on out there in this other dimensional world that sometimes intrudes on ours? In this special edition of the Sound Barrier Podcast, we seek to explore just a few of these haunted areas of Tennessee and Virginia. Welcome, friends, to this special edition of the Sound Barrier. My name's Tom Wilson, and I'm here with April Allen. Say hi, April. Hi. Matthew Poole. Say hi, Matthew. How's it going, everybody? We've got the whole crew together here, so how's everybody doing? Doing good. Doing great. I'm excited. We are. We are. We've got a definitely a special edition today where we're going to be reading and exploring some stories from this area and I think a lot of people will definitely be able to relate to it and hopefully as they're driving around at night they may pass these areas and be a little bit more careful because <laughs> mm, these may or may not be true absolutely that's the great thing about folklore and stories it's it's a little bit of uh, non-fiction and fiction and history and imagination let your imagination go wild absolutely Deep in the Blue Ridge Highlands of Southwest Virginia is a state park that's over five square miles in size and features the classic Appalachian woodland. It has a serene 108-acre lake as well as beautiful mountain vistas that are second to none in this area. It's known as Hungry Mother Lake and for more than a quarter of a century, it's played host to countless camping, outings, family get-togethers, weddings, so many great memories of those who enjoy the park. But why the name Hungry Mother State Park? Well, Hungry Mother comes from a very dark and sad episode many centuries ago. According to local legend, during the French and Indian War, unrest among the Native Americans and white settlers reached an all-time low, with natives soon attacking several settlements along the New River just south of the park in what is now Grayson County, Virginia. During these skirmishes, both settlers and Native Americans saw their loved ones killed and captured. Among those was a young woman named Molly Marley and her small child. They were among the survivors of one of these skirmishes. They were taken away to a Native American camp which was located just north of what is now Hungry Mother State Park. Molly and her child, after a few days of confinement, eventually escaped, wandering through the wilderness of the Appalachian forests, eating berries, maybe even tree bark, just to stay alive. So tired from having been taken captive and trying to find their way back to their settlement, Molly and her child came to a small creek in which Molly sat down, collapsed, too tired to go any further. Days turned into nights. A search party from the pioneer settlements came out and finally found Molly and her child. Molly lay by the creek, dead. The child tugging at her dress with the words, hungry mother, hungry mother. The child was saved. The pioneers made it back to their settlement. That creek where Molly met her fate was later named Hungry Mother Creek, 
or according to legend, on full moon nights, or at dusk in October near Halloween, campers, hikers, and park visitors could faintly hear the cry of a child coming from the woods near the creek. Hungry, mother. Hungry, mother. If you're ever in the Chapel Hills area, you might want to look out for a ghost light. Ghost lights have been an integral part of the folklore of the West and South for centuries. Witnesses have described these anomalies as glowing balls or balls of lights, some of which emitted all the colors of the rainbow, while others had only one or two colors. Ghost lights have been said to sparkle, to move or remain stationary, to hover over the ground or soar high into the night sky. Ghost lights have been called earth lights, spook lights, and will-o'-the-wisps. In Tennessee, the most famous ghost light is that attributed to the phantom signalman of Chapel Hill. On the surface, the legend of the phantom signalman seems to be a generic version of the classic railroad ghost story. Sometime around the late 1800s or early 1900s, Chapel Hill was a whistle stop on the Louisville and Nashville line. Late, one dark and stormy night, an elderly station attendant became concerned that the torrential downpour might have eroded the gravel fill underneath a section of the tracks, posing a real danger for a freight train that was scheduled to pass through Chapel Hill at any minute. Donning his rain slicker, the trainman grabbed a lantern and proceeded down the slippery, sloping rail bed, keeping an eye out for sagging rails. When the oncoming freight train came into view, the signalman intended to flag it down by waving his lantern. However, the only life that was lost that night was his. The next morning, a railroad crew found the man's headless torso. No one knows for certain what happened. Some people believe that the man lost his footing on the wet rocks and hit his head on the rails, knocking himself unconscious. Others speculate that the signalman was standing between the rails, waving his arms, when his lantern suddenly went out. The coroner stated in his report that the signalman's head had been cut off by the steel wheels of the locomotive. His head was never found. For more than a century, Chapel Hill has been known as the home of the ghost light. Witnesses claim that if someone stands between the rails facing north, a glowing ball appears out of nowhere. Suddenly, the ghost light hurtles down the tracks directly toward the person standing on them. Some locals have reported that the ball of light appears to bounce around as it heads down the tracks. As a rule, the ghost light vanishes in just a few seconds. Sometimes months pass without a single sighting. Catherine Tucker Wyndham tells in her book, Tennessee Ghosts and Jeffrey, the story of a young man named Jackie Gentry who ventured down the L and N tracks one night with his uncle and a friend in hopes of seeing the light. The ghost light, that is. The trio was just about to give up when Jackie spotted the ghost light bobbing up and down over the tracks about 100 yards away. The boy quickly positioned himself in the middle of the tracks to get a better view. Without warning, the ghost light swooped down the tracks right toward Jackie. Before he could move a muscle, the light passed through his body and continued flying down the tracks until it disappeared from view. Jackie later recalled hearing a loud thud and feeling a sudden chill as the ghost light penetrated his body. 
Not everyone accepts the folklore explanation for the ghost light of Chapel Hill. Scientists say that ghost lights could be caused by geological anomalies, such as underground pools of liquid, subatomic particles, methane gas, or reflections from nearby towns. Many residents of Chapel Hill believe, however, that history might provide an answer to the mystery. Although there is no contemporary account of a train man who was killed on the L N line around Chapel Hill, local newspapers report that a man named Skip Agent was struck and killed by a train in the area where the ghost light is now seen. No one seems in a hurry to come up with a definitive explanation for the phenomenon, though. As long as the ghost light remains a mystery, light seekers will continue traveling to Chapel Hill. So while in Chapel Hill, look out for the ghost light. This story comes to us from our very own Carr County. It's titled, The Double-Headed Hitchhiker. An old crime, long forgotten, has produced an eager hitchhiker in Carter County, Tennessee. Gap Creek Road runs south from Watauga Point through Big Spring and Gap Creek to Gap Run at Tennessee 361. A tall ghost lurches from roadside shadows toward any vehicle passing late at night along a particular curve of this road, wet weather or dry. The ghost is so tall, in fact, some people who have seen him think he is wearing a hi-hat, one of those old-time stovepipe hats. A few people, those most easily frightened, believe instead that the ghost has two heads, one on top of the other. Cars outrun the double-headed hitchhiker from time to time. Other times, a driver is not so lucky. After the towering ghost catches a lift, he is through for the night. And what a ride it is. Once the tall figure grabs hold of a moving car, he doesn't let go. You couldn't pry him loose with a shovel. Wherever he grabs the car, door handle, front bumper, or back, he quickly climbs to the top of the car. The tips of his shoes can be seen at the top of the rear window. The view is worse through the front windshield. Initially, his hands appear, five bloody fingertips on the driver's side, then five bloody fingertips on the passenger's half. The ghost is gearing up to look inside. His hat appears, if you think it's a hat, followed by a set of peering eyes, looking straight and hard at the driver and then at whoever else is in the car. If you're one of those who believes the hitchhiker is double-headed, first a head appears, then another. One head is on top of the other, like olives on a toothpick. Frightened drivers have swerved to throw him off the car. This is not advised. Others have slammed on the brakes. It doesn't do any good. What the double-headed or high-hatted ghost wants is a ride around the curve, and he wants it every night. The blood on his hands is his own. If you believe the story of Jubal and James, brothers from down around Gap Run, James was older, but Jubal was taller. Jubal was so tall and thin that people said he resembled Abraham Lincoln. James had a little bit of money in 1928. He worked at the sawmill and had about six acres in potatoes. James decided to use his money to get himself a wife. He was the older brother and it was time he got married. I want to meet the finest woman in Carter County, James told his younger brother. 
I want a real peach of a girl, Jubal, a snappy piece of work. I want to marry the best there is. No pill or pickle or priss will do. The best, Jubal agreed, nodding. How was his brother going to do that? A peach, Jubal, a real sweet patootie. Patootie was a word they used in the 1920s. No one laughed at that. I surely hope you do, Jubal said, but he didn't see how. Jubal knew how. He took every dime he had and bought a car. His car came on the train from Michigan. It was a Ford Model A in a nice tan color called Arabian Sand, with a self-starter and other fancy gadgetry. It had a shatterproof windshield, the first of its kind. The car arrived just in time for the 4th of July festival and fireworks show at Big Spring. It was the biggest of times, an outdoor picnic and party that lasted till midnight. It was the biggest of times, an outdoor picnic and party that lasted till midnight. Every peach of a girl in the county would be there. This was a time in small town America when people dressed up in costumes for the 4th of July. They dressed up like patriots and presidents, like George and Martha Washington, like Uncle Sam. Ladies wore red striped dresses with blue stars sewn on. They wore dresses with red, white, and blue sashes. James didn't want to wear a costume. He believed he looked his best without one. Jubal, though, decided to go as Abraham Lincoln. He dressed in black. He put black shoe polish on his face in the trim black fashion of Lincoln's beard. His old pappy let him wear his gold watch from the Civil War. Jubal wore it in a vest pocket with the big gold chain in a single loop on his left side. Jubal topped off the effect with a tall stove pipe hat he rented from the undertaker in Hampton for a nickel. With the hat on, his pappy said, you look seven feet tall. Be careful with my watch, you hear? James and Jubal rode to the picnic and fireworks show in James' new Model A. The car was as pretty as any gold watch. James found exactly what he was looking for, a sweet patootie. He showed her his car. She climbed inside to try out the seats. By the time it was dark, she and James were holding hands. When the first fireworks exploded in the sky, they kissed. Jubal, when he wasn't dodging firecrackers tossed by the young boys, spent his time having fun with the old people in costumes. He posed with them for pictures. He held his pappy's gold watch in his right hand with the case slid open, as if he meant to check the time the play at Ford's Theater was supposed to begin. He held it in his right hand so people could see the heavy gold chain looped on the left side of his vest. Jubal used his left hand to tug at the narrow brim of his stovepipe hat whenever he walked close to a lady. James found Jubal to tell him the situation. If I'm going to get her to marry me, Jubal, I'm going to have to drive her home alone. You know it's why I got the car in the first place. Jubal knew he didn't want to walk home, but it was a warm night out and there wasn't any rain. He supposed he could trudge the miles from Big Spring to Gap Run. I'll tell you what, I'll take her on home after the fireworks are over, and then I'll come back up to the road to find you. If you're still walking, I'll give you a lift. Kiss her once for me, will you? Jubal said. Jubal, who was watching the fireworks alone and didn't have a picnic blanket to sit on, left before the fireworks were quite finished. Other people were leaving too. Some were in cars, other on buckboards and in wagons, 
hitched to horses. Some walked. As he put a little footfall between himself and the picnic, the fireworks were even prettier. You could see them better from a distance. Jubal's long legs and open stride carried him quickly ahead of the other pedestrians. They seemed to lollygag anyway. Couples with their arms around each other, Jubal walked alone. Maybe someone he knew from Gap Run would come by and offer him a ride. He hiked alongside the road. His rented stovepipe tilted from side to side as he marched at the road's edge. Jubal tugged it into place more than once to keep it from slipping. Finally, somewhere south of where the road crossed Scaffold Branch, he pulled the tall hat down snug with both hands from either side until it wedged tightly over the top of his ears. There, it would stay put for a while. There seemed to be fewer and fewer people behind him, and the road itself was empty now. Empty for quite a spell. Jubal knew Gap Creek Road well, and there were two big curves ahead that could be easily shortcut by walking through the corner of a field once you jumped a ditch. Jubal elected to make up some distance by walking a couple hundred yards over land. Someone trailing him had the same idea. He could hear them hurrying along behind him as he came to a tree on a slight rise. Jubal paused briefly, thinking to wait to say hello to people coming along. He didn't have to wait. It was only one man, and he was running straight at Jubal. There was something in his hand. Jubal sucked in his breath. Whoa there now, he said. His saying it had no effect. The man smacked right into Jubal as if on purpose, knocking him down. He pushed at Jubal with one hand and prodded at Jubal with the other. Give me your watch, the stranger said. It was somebody from the picnic. Jubal realized too late that he was being attacked. The man meant to rob Jubal of his pappy's gold watch and chain. His assailant had a knife in one hand. Give it to me or I'll stick you deep, the robber said. Jubal kicked at him. He cut both of his hands by trying to grab the man's knife. It stung pretty badly. There were deep cuts. Jubal kicked again and scrambled about, twisting the man almost entirely off of him. Jubal felt himself be stabbed in the chest. It hurt like he had been hit by a bullet, he thought. Jubal stood up. He still had his hat on. He swung wildly at the stranger, connecting. He moved away, but only a step or two. Jubal was stabbed in the back. It wasn't bad. The robber must have been off balance. Jubal turned and swung his fist with swift but unsure violence and luckily connected with the man's face, knocking him back. Jubal ran toward the road. He stumbled, he fell, he got back up. He splashed through the ditch water and pulled himself up the other side, where he stood to catch his breath. It hurt to breathe. His belly hurt too. He patted his vest to feel for his pappy's watch. It was there, but his hands came away soaked with blood. Jubal lurched forward toward a pair of large headlights he saw on the road, coming from the north. He heard his assailant splash into the ditch directly behind him. Jubal stepped into the road in front of the oncoming car. He held one hand to his aching belly. He raised his other hand to hail the car to, to a stop. He raised his other hand to hail the car to stop. 
it hurt something awful to reach his arm up. He skipped a few steps along the road, away from the attacker's certain approach. The car was upon him. It was a brand new Model A painted in the color the factory called Arabian Sand. It was James behind the wheel, and sitting next to him was the sweet patootie James had met at the picnic. They couldn't see Jubal too well. James had to swerve to keep from hitting him. Who's that? The fair passenger asked her stalwart driver. Jubal fell to the road on his knees. He was bleeding badly. Don't know who that could be, James lied, thinking his brother was pulling some kind of prank. Leave it to Jubal, he thought. That boy would never grow up. It looked like Abraham Lincoln, the girl said, giggling. I'm glad you didn't hit him. The Model A left Jubal behind, and his assailant was soon upon him to finish the job. He stabbed Jubal in the heart, took the watch and chain, and rolled his body to the side of the road. Jubal's body was found by others walking the road a short time later. He was still wearing his stovepipe hat, which was returned directly to the man from whom it had been rented, the undertaker. He was buried at age 17 in a long casket, but Jubal was never properly put to rest. If his brother had stopped for him, instead of swerving to one side, it might have saved his life. If Jubal had grabbed secure of the car, he might have made it to safety. Jubal must believe so, because he keeps trying. The tall, shadowy figure on Gap Creek Road is the ghost of a man murdered on the 4th of July, the story goes. The ghost is that of a young man attempting to outrun his fate. He doesn't have two heads, although it may look like it. It's just a hat. Perhaps he'd like to have his pappy's gold watch back, but what he really seeks is a ride to safety around a certain curve on Gap Creek Road. He'll likely try it again tonight and tomorrow night, and every night thereafter. James got married, but he sold the car after that night. Word in Carter County is, he took a loss. The Legend of Pigman Bridge. A small town in West Tennessee called Millington there's a legend about a pig man, but how did he become known as the pig man? Well, this trips back into history, blending real American history with folklore. If you go down Shelby Road in Millington, Tennessee, you'll encounter a series of twists and turning roads. If you go down Shelby Road in Millington, Tennessee, you'll find a few roads that are probably long forgotten, long past the history. Locals down there know that in that area, there used to be a plant called the Chicksaw Ordnance Works. These ordnance works were built for one reason, to supply bombs and explosives during World War II. The plant went online in 1942. The factory consisted of miles and miles of underground tunnels, which are used to transport the products to create high explosive cakes known as gun cotton. The main ingredient of this gun cotton was TNT also produced on site. The smokestacks to the plant are still visible, stretching like longing arms into the sky. That's when you'll know you're near the Chicksaw Ordnance Works. This type of work was very, very dangerous to say the least. 
In the 1940s, the accident rate was zero. That's how close it held a world record as being one of the safest plants of its kind in the entire world. Despite that, this was still dangerous work, and eventually, fate caught up to one of the workers. As legend has it, one day, even though it was against the rules to even carry a ballpoint pen to work because the click itself could spark an explosion, a man was working at the plant and was disposing of some chemicals behind the tunnels into the creek, which was common at the time. When he was done doing the things that so many other workers had done many times before, he decided to have a cigarette. He went over behind one of the buildings and lit a match. Unfortunately, the residue of the chemicals remained on his hands, igniting an explosion. But the explosion went off right in his hands and right in his face. Workers heard his screams and came running. He was rescued and brought to the hospital. Unfortunately, the damage was done. The worker, whose name has been either forgotten, disputed, or just forgotten by history, had lost his nose, his ears, his face scarred horribly. That, according to workers and witnesses at the time, he looked like a pig. As terrifying as this was, what happened after was in some ways even sadder and worse for the man who became known as the pig man. Upon leaving the hospital, his wife refused to allow him in the house, saying that he would scare their children too bad. His appearance so frightened other people in the town, he couldn't find anywhere to live. The plant kept him on, as his skill with making chemicals was still needed, because a war was on. The pig man, as he became called by his fellow co-workers, took up residence under a bridge near Shakerag Road, not far from the plant. It was under that bridge where the pig man lived and continued to work. After World War II ended, the plant was shuttered and shut down in 1946. The reason? The work was so dangerous, civilians could not carry it out. There was no point to risk further accidents, to injure workers or even to destroy the entire town. The pig man was out of work. He was also out of luck, consigned only to living under this bridge, ostracized and shut off from society. According to legends, he lived there. As time went on, the pig man's legend grew, and odd appearances would happen around Millington, such as a woman being attacked at night or a child going missing. Locals would blame the pig man. In fact, stories became such that the pig man kidnapped children and ate them. People would wander around the bridge looking for him. Some claimed that they would occasionally see him, catch a sight of him disappearing into the woods or into the brush near Shake Rag Road. They would find an encampment under the bridge where the pig man supposedly lived, but no one ever dared to stay there long. As this legend grew into the 1960s and 1970s, teenagers would park their car under the bridge, hoping to see a glimpse of the pig man on Halloween night. Legend has it, a few of them did have an encounter with pig man. What happened is also lost to history. Through the 70s and 80s, the legend grew that if you parked your car under the bridge, flashed your lights three times, the pig man would appear and try to kill you. While the stories and legends 
went on. The fate of the pig man remained a bit of a mystery. As the years went by, the stories of the pig man continued. Police would look for him. Search parties would go out trying to find the elusive pig man. They would catch a glimpse. A horrifying face would be reported looking through a window late at night. But the pig man's whereabouts were never fully known. So is the pig man still down there? Well, if you ever find yourself driving New Millington, Tennessee, look for those two smokestacks, those two giant stone arms reaching into the sky. Go on down Shelby Road, park, flash your lights three times, preferably in October or maybe near Halloween. You never know. The pig man may be around, lurking, simply wanting someone to acknowledge he's still alive. It was a dark and stormy night. A man was traveling home, but he got lost since it was so dark and stormy. He took a wrong turn. Then his car broke down. He had no cell phone, no way of contacting anyone. So he started walking and walked and walked and walked. No house, no gas station, no civilization in sight. So he kept walking and walking. All the while, it's still pouring rain, still dark, still windy. Then he sees a light off in the distance. He gets hope. Someone might help him. So he heads toward that light. It's a house. So then he starts walking up the long, very long driveway. Finally makes it to the front door and he knocks. A kind man opens the door. The man explained his situation. His car broke down. He doesn't know where he's at and just asked for a change of clothes and some way to contact someone. The man was very hospitable, welcomed him in his house, gave him a change of clothes, fed him, nice warm bed to sleep in. He said, tomorrow morning, I'll take you to your car. We'll get it fixed and you can be on your way. But whatever you do, do not go in the basement. The man was tired, didn't think anything about it, didn't care about the man's basement. After he ate, got a good night's sleep. Woke up the next morning, found a note on the counter. Man said, I'll be back, went to get your car, enjoy your breakfast, but don't go in the basement. The man enjoyed his breakfast, sitting there, not knowing what to do with this free time. He's curious about the basement. Slowly opens the basement door, pitch dark, looks for a light, no light. Slowly walks down the creaky, steep stairs. The closer he gets to the bottom, he hears something. <sighs> he stops, wonders if he should keep going. He thought, ah, uh, it's probably the wind. He keeps going. He gets to the bottom of the stairs. All of a sudden, he knows why he wasn't supposed to be in the basement. Big, tall, hairy creature 
foam coming out of his mouth was in a cage, clawing at him. The man starts up the stairs, taking two at a time, runs out the door. He hears this creature behind him running. He's gaining, he's gaining. This man, is, he's, he's trying to run as fast as he can, runs out the front door, running and running and running down the long, long driveway. He stops for a breath. The creature gains on him. And then he tries to make it to the end of the driveway and then he just can't keep going anymore. He feels a creature put his hairy, strong hand on his shoulder and says, Tag, you're it. <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. Let's see that one coming. I told you you would. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be a little cheesy, but it was fun to well, tell my brother and sister. <laughs> oh, funny. It's, it's a good one to, to end on there, to, uh, on a, like a... Funnier note. Yeah, light note. lighthearted. How much your brother and sister were freaked out, too? Did that, did that scare mm-hmm. them? The build-up mm-hmm. scare them? Yes, it Funny. really did. Yeah. <laughs> but then they wanted to hear it again. <laughs> yep. So the Chapel Hill lights. Mm-hmm. Very, very creepy. Yeah, right? Story. I knew, like, Brown Mountain lights, but Chapel Hill mm-hmm. lights. My grandpa oh. used to work in a railroad, and he would work, you know, graveyard. Mm-hmm. So I would, my grandmother would take me sometimes to visit him. I'm glad I didn't know that's this story then. That would have been creepy. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. April, I think your story too was a good one to end on. I think it's, it was funny to, after all the creepy stories that we had, <laughs> and all those, yours was leading up to a very, very creepy, uh, maybe even horrific ending. <laughs> so it's nice to have a little lightheartedness at the end. It's kind of um, like, yeah, just kidding. <laughs> And it's, I think all these stories, it, it's incredible uh, to hear about all these myths and legends and ghost stories that have happened in our area alone. There's a multitude of them. It's it's pretty interesting to hear all these stories, have yeah. all of us come together. And, and I hope that we were, for our listeners, able to put them in the Halloween spirit and the spooky spirit and send a few chills down their spine. If anybody wants to send their own spooky story or spooky experience... Just email it to the soundbarrier at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it. We want to hear from you, yeah. listeners. If you, the soundbarrier at gmail.com, send us your spooky story. We'd be delighted to hear it. Listeners, thank you for listening, viewing, and subscribing. We really hope that you enjoyed this very spooky edition of the Sound Barrier and got you in the Halloween spirit. We hope to see you next time as we continue to break the barrier.